through Luke's gospel. So let's go there. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. We've made it to Luke 21. We've been uh, noticing that this huge collision now is taking place. It's really a collision of two temples. You have the temple and the temple leadership kind of confronting uh, this walking temple, this living, breathing temple, Jesus. Or better yet, Jesus is confronting them. Um, Luke 21, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Jesus sounds the trumpet. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had. It's wonderful foreshadowing to what's going to be said next. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said to them, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Rabbi, they asked, When will these things happen? Give us a sign that will signal that these things are going to take place. Jesus replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he. And that the time is near, but do not follow them. And when your heart, and when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will seize you, they will persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues, they're going to put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind and do not worry beforehand what you will say to defend yourselves. For I will give you the words. I will give you wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed by even your parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair will fall from your head. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. And when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its destruction is near. Then let those who are in in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment to all that has been written How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. 
They will fall by the sword. They will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nation will be in anguish. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies themselves will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves, and you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is God's word. You can be seated. Quite a text. Who wants to preach it? <laughs> well, again, we're in, in the last week of Jesus' life, and, and every day Jesus is making his way to the temple. And again, I just I, I want you to feel what the temple was in Jesus' day. This is not a synagogue. In fact, a synagogue in Jesus' day wasn't much bigger than this stage up here. There were just little local uh, buildings where where they gathered um, for, for worship. But the temple was literally like going to Washington, D.C. or the Vatican. Um, it's the center of Jewish life religion. I just want you guys to just see this a little bit. I mean, that right there is uh, a reconstruction of what the temple looked like. And I like this picture because you can see the huge platform that it's built upon. That's three football fields by five football fields. Uh, you see where the people enter there, and then the southern stairs over there to your right. This is also taken from one of those uh, rich uh, villas of, of, of that priestly Sadducean class. You can see the, the kind of homes that they lived in, and then down below is where more of the common people lived. In fact, that, uh, rail, that um, bridge going into uh, the temple to the left there was just for the priests and Levites. That was their way in. Uh, They were untouchable. They were exalted. They were above everybody else. Um, And there you can see the the house itself uh, where God lived, Uh, the the, the white, um, beautiful uh, structure that Herod himself kind of made into a thing of beauty. Let me just show you one more picture because this is now, there's that uh, way in for the priests and Levites. And I just want to give you, like, proximity. The temple, Mount of Olives, and uh, this is right out of the ESV study Bible, and they're right. That's where Calvary would have been, and if you can see that, that little, that mound there. And when I think about this in light of Genesis 22, that God asked Abraham to take his son to Mount Moriah, and Mount Moriah is the hill where the temple is built. Um... 
And to see how close, you know, that father taking his son to lay him on the altar, to see how close that actually is to where God took his son and, and laid his son on the altar for us. Um, that just gives you some visualization this morning. But um, Jesus, well, let me just also say this about the temple, because I think this is important. Don't think of this as just a great cathedral or just a house of worship. To the Jews, this is where heaven met earth. It was heaven. When they went to the temple, they were literally in their minds going to what we think of when we think of heaven. That was literally God's house. And uh, that, to this day, it's still, you can still get in a taxi and say, hey, can you take me to ha, um, Habite, Har Habite, and, and that means just the house on the hill. They know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, the house, the house, the house where, where God uh, lives. Of course, it's not there anymore. So now Jesus, in this last week of his life, he knows that the temple leadership wants to kill him. Yet he shows up there every day and, and says things like, my house, this is my house, will be called the house of prayer. And he acts like he owns the house. He rearranges the furniture and, and he, you know, it pushes people out that don't belong there. Um, he is doing some in-your-face kind of stuff. He's also drawing huge crowds and... I have a good idea where these crowds would gather. Um, There's something called Solomon's Colonnade, uh, which wrapped itself around the temple platform. I I have a few PowerPoint pictures of that, just so you can get a sense of that. Um, It was these huge pillars that just wrapped themselves around the temple courtyard to provide shade, um, called Solomon's Colonnade which actually is the place where the early church met. Every single day they would gather in Solomon's Colonnade because this also is the place where great rabbis would come and they would teach. And so, here, here, here Jesus is. Every day. And the people are coming and surrounding him and hanging on every word he, he says. And it's in this context where he talks about the parable of the, of the tenants with the vineyard Who are the tenants? It's the temple leadership. The vineyard is God's garden, the place where heaven and earth meet, where God walks with his people in the cool of the day. It's the temple. And the temple tenants are called to steward this thing, but instead they use it all for their own corrupt gain. And Jesus says, I'm the chief stone. I'm the chief temple. Reject me, and I'll crush you. Clash, collision. It's going to end with a crucifixion. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Strong biblical cultural evidence that, except for Peter, all these guys are under 20. Teenagers. And here they are, following Jesus, watching it, digesting it, taking it all in. And They're leaving the temple one day, and look at verse 5. 
what they say to Jesus. Wow, isn't this place awesome? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, they're, they're not the only ones awestruck by this. Yeah, they're Galilean kids from the country. They don't get to the city much. But even the Romans, when they showed up into Jerusalem for the first time, they couldn't believe what they saw when they saw the temple. And these disciples have staked their whole life in the belief that the one they're following is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. So I almost picture them walking around this temple starting to pick out their office. There's my office. Then Jesus drops a massive bomb. What does he say in verse 7? Verse 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on the other. Every one of them will be thrown down. You can't imagine the shock and horror this would have caused any Jew. This was inconceivable to them. It was unimaginable. It would be like Jesus saying to us, that the day is coming when Washington, D.C., when the Capitol building, the White House, the Pentagon, it's all coming down. If Jesus told you that, what would your next question be? When? When's it going to happen? And what are going to be the, 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 the signs that this is going to happen? That's exactly what the disciples ask in the next verse. Look at verse 7. And then everything that Jesus says next, something that Christians have taken out of context, in my opinion, and I know some people are going to walk out today on my sermon, but that's okay. Um, Because we have taken all of this to be future, signs of the very end. The context says, no, this is... Not the end of time, it's the end of a time. What time? The time when that temple is finally going to meet its end. And so it's, it's not the end of the world, it's the end of a world. And one thing I've learned with, with, with Christians, there's some things you just... If you want to start a good food fight, uh, talk about school, uh, the choice of schools for your kids, <laughs> talk politics, or talk end times, okay? Um, if you have formed an end time theology based on Tim LaHaye or Left Behind, this stuff isn't going to jive. I'm just giving you a warning right now. But one of the big mistakes I think we make in in interpreting the Bible is we so badly want to run everything to us, to our time, to our day, that we forget that it first meant something to the time in which it was written. So here's the context. Something more traumatic than even the temple being destroyed is about to happen to these disciples, and Jesus as a matter of fact, in a matter of days, is going to be hanging on a Roman cross. Something he has tried to explain to his disciples, but something that hasn't sunk in yet. 
And one of the beautiful things that you see in the gospel accounts, every single one of them, in the last week of Jesus' life, he is pastoring these guys. He's shepherding them. He's trying to comfort them. He's trying to prepare them for this reality of when he's not with them anymore. So right here, that's what he's doing. He's like, hey guys, some crazy things are about to happen. In fact, they're going to happen in your lifetime. And then in verses 8 to 28, he explains what these things are. And then in verse 29, he tells a parable. Look, if everything I've just said is a little bit unclear, just like the trees, uh, when you start to see them bud, you know summer's coming. When you see these things happen, it's going to make sense. And verse 32 to me is the interpretive key to everything I've said. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Truly, all these things this generation. A generation, biblically, is 40 years. So, by 70 AD. Because right now, it's about 30 AD when Jesus is talking. And if you look at the next verse, verse 33, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Uh, Josephus the historian who writes during this time even tells us that heaven and earth is one of the main technical terms for the temple. Of course it is. This is where heaven meets earth in their minds. The temple will pass away, says Jesus, but my words will never pass away. In fact, Jesus' prophecy in these verses is is not a new one. Uh, Go to Ezekiel 7. If you have a Bible like mine, this is found on, found on page 678, or you can just listen. Uh, this is the prophet Ezekiel writing hundreds of years before Jesus. He says, The word of the Lord came to me. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and for your detestable practices among you. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to his own people. Saying horrible things are going to happen. Describing it as the end. And then it keeps going. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Disaster, unheard of disaster. See, it comes The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. See, it comes. Doom has come upon you. Upon you who dwell in the land, the time has come. The day day is near. There is panic, not joy on the mountains. And then it goes on and talks about the end of Jerusalem and the end of the temple. The end. Not the end of time. The end of a time. And we need to see what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. It's this, it's this awesome reality to them that God is no longer going to save, redeem, and dwell with his people through that building. 
Because if you continue to read Ezekiel, um, Ichabod, the glory is going to depart the temple. And God left that building then by the time of Jesus a long time ago. His presence is no longer there. And Jesus even takes it one step further, as did a lot of his contemporaries. Not only does Jesus say God is not there, he says this place is utterly corrupt. And it's run by utterly corrupt people. As beautiful as it is on the outside, as impressive as it is, it is that disgusting on the inside. In fact, fact, I want us to take note of the literary genius of Luke because look at how Luke begins this whole chapter. He begins this chapter by highlighting this poor widow because Luke wants us to understand the temple in light of this poor widow. Because here is this temple in all its glory, all its beauty, taking everything that this poor widow has, and here is this poor widow who, in her poverty, not very pleasing to look at probably, but giving everything she has to God. And Luke wants us to to put these things side by side. And I can almost see Jesus saying, now that's beautiful. Look at her. Look at her. That's beauty. Because man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. In fact, Jesus himself in his lifetime makes some of his boldest declarations about himself in light of the temple. He says things like, I tell you the truth, one greater than the temple is here. Later he says, destroy this temple and three days later I'll raise it up again. In fact, what he's doing there is he's claiming to be the true temple of God. This living, breathing, walking temple. Which if true, and it's true to me, um, (laughs) but if it's true to them, the consequences of this are, are so massive. Because he's literally making that beautiful building and everything associated with it, the priests, the sacrifices, he's making it all irrelevant and obsolete. Because if he really is the Messiah king priest, the, the, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, he's making all those priests irrelevant and obsolete. If he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all those lamb sacrifices now become obsolete. And I just gave you a summary of the book of Hebrews. Because this is precisely what the book of Hebrews is about. That Jesus is a superior temple. He's a superior and final priest. He's a superior and final sacrifice. But put yourself in their shoes. Generation after generation. You go to the house because that's the place of worship. You go to the house because that's the place where your sins are forgiven, where you're reconciled to God. You go to the house because that's where we get to come back into heaven. That's where we get to enter the courts of God. Better is one day, said the psalmist, in your courts in heaven than a thousand elsewhere. You see, this is why God has to take it away. In fact, God gives him a whole generation. He gives him 40 years to transition from that bricks and mortar building to his new living, breathing temple. So in verses 8 to 19, Jesus says, here are the signs that are going to signal the end of this temple. 
He starts with things that are going to happen on the world stage. Verses 8 to 11, he says there's going to be many wannabe messiahs who are going to show up. He says there's going to be wars and uprisings, nation against nation, civil wars, earthquakes, famines. He says, look for these things. Then in verses 12 to 18, Jesus makes this really personal for these guys. He says, these are the things that are going to happen to you. You guys are going to be treated the same way they treat me. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be brought to trial. You're going to be put in prison. You're going to be beaten. Everyone's going to start hating you, even people close to you, your brothers, your parents, relatives, friends. Count on it. And I love this. Jesus is probably, these guys probably have a look of horror in their eyes, so he pastors them. He says, just know this, when you get arrested and all this, when you got to stand before uh, those kings and those rulers and those judges, I'm going to be standing there with you. I'm going to put my words in your mouth. You don't even have to know right now what you're going to say because I'm going to speak to you. And go read the book of Acts and see how many times these guys are arrested and put in prison and brought before judges and kings. And many of them are teenagers in my mind. And the guts that they have, you can just tell. God is with them. Jesus is there. I mean, Stephen, that whole thing. Do you guys realize what Stephen said to the Supreme Court of his day? Who ran the temple? He takes them through a whole story of the temple and what the temple was and why God gave it to them and how God isn't there anymore. His glory isn't there anymore. And you guys killed the true temple. And he got stoned for that. They had chutzpah. They had courage. Look at verse 19, because here Jesus now gives them specific instruction. He says, I want you to stand firm in, in light of all this. We looked at this word when we looked at Hebrews. It's, it's the Greek word, hupermeno. Meno means to remain or to abide or to stand. But it has that hooper added to it, that hyper. This means I want you to hyper stand. I want you to hyper remain. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It's going to be intense. Just stay. Hyper stand. Look we'll at two verses later, verse 21. Jesus gives him another specific instruction. Flee! <laughs> get out! Wait a second, you just said stay, hyper stay. Now you're saying flee, get out. <laughs> well, yeah, look at the verse right in between. See, what Jesus is talking about here is when you see the foreign armies come and surround Jerusalem, that'll be something really specific. When you see this, that is your signal now to run. Get out of Dodge. Because dark, disastrous things are going to unfold. 
And Jesus tells you in verses 22 through 24 what's going to happen there. It's going to be so bad, so miserable. Why would Jesus have to tell these guys to run? They're Jews. I'd like to think he'd have to tell me to run. I'd like to think that he'd have to tell you to run. Um, If something next week, if a foreign army came to Washington, D.C., what would you do? Come on, I'd like to think that we would all, because we love our country, would get in whatever vehicle we could get, and we'd get to D.C. as fast as we could with a much punch in 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 ourselves to do something about it. Listen, you don't have to be a card-carrying zealot to be a zealot. But what Jesus is saying to these guys, guys, please, uh, when you see these foreign armies come, would you resist the temptation to fight? When these Romans make it here, get out, get out. Everything in you is going to want to fight, but that's not the place I want you to die. Now, I want to be careful that this sermon doesn't turn into a history lesson, but now let me just tell you some things. That transpired. And this is all in the, in, in the historians and the history books of this time period. In 64 AD, which is 34 years after Jesus died, the Roman emperor named Nero unleashed a brutal persecution on Christians. This is where he didn't just kill them, but this is where he tortured them. This is where he brought them into the arenas and they became the halftime show. Sometimes they would just be uh, brought out and the lions uh, would, would, would devour them. Or sometimes they would surround the arena by being hung up on crosses. Sometimes they would be impaled. Sometimes they would be wrapped in, 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 in rope and burned. And this would be the entertainment. Paul didn't make it through, through this persecution. Peter didn't make it through it. Thousands of Christians died. In 66 AD, Rome was so tired of all their, their, their soldiers coming back in body bags that they said, enough is enough. We're going to do something about those Jewish zealots. They came uh, with two legions And they just started to conquer, 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 all the way down to Jerusalem. 68 AD, they surrounded the city. Josephus, the historian writing at this this time, who was an eyewitness to it, uh, described this as the darkest of days. He said thousands of Jews starved to death. He said they fought each other for the scraps. He said more Jews died through the hand of another Jew than through, through the Romans. He writes, mothers grew so desperate that they ate their own babies to stay alive. He said many false messiahs came and and went, promising victory. He writes that Nero's death in 69 AD, while this siege is still going on, that civil war then broke out in the whole Roman Empire. Nation against nation, four different emperors in one year. The world quaked. Even thousands of Christians were, were put to death at this time to go along with all the Jews. 
In 70 AD, the Romans made good of Jesus' prophecy. Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was completely destroyed. And this is what the Romans did as they drew closer to victory. Every day, they rounded up 500 Jews and nailed them to crosses. It's a holocaust. There's a reason why to this day the cross is an offensive thing to the Jewish people. What kind of language do you use to describe such horrors? You too. The stars fall from the sky and the moon turns red over one tree hill. And you too is just singing what the prophets spoke about when they described cataclysmic events that were about to happen in their time. Sun darkened, moon quenched, stars falling. But this was not the end of the world. Thousands of Jews probably thought it was. They wished it was, but it was not the end of the world. It was the end of a world. And as prophet, Jesus predicted it, As Messiah, he enacted it when he cleansed the temple. And now let's bring this back to this collision of two temples. Both crushed. Both destroyed. One temple will be crushed and never rise again. The other temple... God's true, living, breathing temple, when it's crushed, three days later, will rise again and live. A temple lives. Jesus wins. Not only is he victorious, but he is vindicated. He proves that he is the true temple, starting with his resurrection, and then his ascension, and finally with the destruction of the bricks and mortar temple. He is the one true temple. And I love the language that Jesus uses to describe his victory in verse 27. Look at it. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. I mean, this is Jesus' favorite depiction about himself. He, he calls himself the Son of Man. I read this week by David Flusser, who's one of the foremost uh, scholars on Judaism during the first century. Um, not a Christian, but, but a historian um, and, a, and a scholar of his text. He says the concept of the Son of Man is the highest, most godlike concept of the Savior the ancient Judaism ever knew. And where did they get this concept of the Son of Man? From Daniel 7, verse 13. Where it describes the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And, and it's at this point, I think, where Christians are sometimes directionally challenged because coming in the clouds to us is coming from heaven to earth. It's coming down. But in Daniel 7, it's the Son of Man returning from heaven, going to the clouds, to stand before the Ancient of Days. 
And then you look at the context in which that's said in Daniel 7, and you, you see right before it, there's this great beast who brings terror and destruction to all the earth. But then it's killed, and, and you're left wondering who killed it. Well, the text implies that the Son of Man killed it, and then after killing it, uh, he returns from the battle, comes into the clouds to stand before the Ancient of Days. We almost imagine him like David after killing Goliath with sword in one hand and the head of the snake in the other. And he comes through the, through the clouds to stand before the Ancient of Days. In that moment, the Ancient of Days knights him and says, you, for doing that, will have dominion over all people forever. And Jews said, that's Messiah. And Jesus said, that's me. And plug that into our story. He came to this world He defeated the dragon. He rose from the dead. Went up into the clouds. Went to the ancient of days. Who knows? Maybe with the... And God said, sit at my right hand. You are a king of kings and a lord of lords. And you will sit at my right hand and reign forever. I'll tell you, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it does talk about an end time over and over again. And it's something that we as Christians don't talk about very much, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 7, it says the Son of Man will descend from heaven and he's going to come back uh, through the clouds to earth. And it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first to meet him there, and then those who are alive shall also be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That day's coming. And then what? And then all of us together with Christ at the head are going to descend upon a renewed earth where God will abide, where the whole earth will be a temple. And read Revelation 21 and 22 and, and, and get excited about our future. It's our, it's our hope. But here's what I'm saying today. This text isn't describing that. It's describing the end of a time, the destruction of the temple. And I think the reason why Christians run this text to the end of the world is because we have failed to see the importance of this event. That temple needed to be destroyed. And you ask, which temple? Both of them. The living temple Christ needed to be destroyed to open a way to God. So that that curtain that separates us from God, it could be destroyed so that we could go into God and so that God could come into us. I know, it's awesome. And the bricks and mortar temple had to be destroyed because God is changing his address from that building into his people. He lives in us. His raw Shekinah glory and presence is in us. 
And I want us as Christians to know the significance of this, that we are God's temple on earth right now because this is such an awesome reality and it's an awesome responsibility. But if we just put it all future, we don't have to, we won't know either the awesome reality nor will we feel the awesome responsibility. The reality is that God is now doing his work of new birth, of new creation, of making all things new through us. That we are the very presence of God on earth. That we are the Shekinah glory of God. That God is now saving and redeeming his world. Not through a building. Through a living, breathing temple. Think about what that temple was. That was a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. That's where people came to be made right with God. This is where sins were forgiven. And it wasn't just this way because Jesus also said, if you don't have everything right this way, don't expect that it's going to get right this way. But that's where you came. And that forgiveness and reconciliation happened because of sacrifice. Are you a temple right now? Are you a place of radical forgiveness? Are you a person who is constantly forgiving people who have wronged you, who have hurt you? Or are you just angry and critical and always trying to get even? As the temple of God, we are to live and move in this world, forgiving people as Christ forgave us, which means we literally absorb the debt. And yes, that hurts. But we're a temple. That's what we do in this world. And to think that the temple was also heaven on earth Psalm 91, when the psalmist says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He's talking about the temple. When you dwell in in his shelter, there's rest. We are to be a place of rest. And shalom. In a world that is still plunged into convulsions. There's convulsions everywhere. We live in a world at war. We live in a world of famine. We live in a world of earthquake. Nation against nation. We live in a world where we're hated and persecuted. But in light of all this, we've got to ask these two questions. Who are we? What are we doing here? Here's who we are. We're the temple of God. We are the very presence of God on this earth. And why we're here, we are called to bring his presence, his shalom, into a world of chaos. Would anybody right now say about you, oh, that person's just heaven. You're such a place of rest. That dying world ought to come panting to us. Because when they come to us, the temple of God, they're coming to heaven, into God's very Shekinah presence. 
You know how we become this? Not by being priests, walking around in our flowing robes and our titles. By being like this poor widow. She just gave it all. Not so people would look at her or know her, but out of the goodness of her heart, I give you my, oh God, everything I have. Let's pray. God, first we just thank you that Jesus, you won that you are the true temple of God. You're the priest to end all priests. And you bring us right in, right into the throne room of God. You bring God's Shekinah glory presence right into us. That's what Pentecost is all about. And God, I pray that this would not just make us privileged but we'd feel the responsibility that you are making your appeal to the world through us. God, that you would fill us with your presence as we humble ourselves like a widow, a poor widow, giving you our all. In Jesus' name, amen.